0: I'm gonna begin by playing a piece of tape. We will not walk in fear one of another. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent. Which goes by really quickly, I'm gonna play it again. We will not walk in fear one of another. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent. This is the actor whose name I still don't know how to pronounce, David Strathairn, Strathairn. He's playing Edward R. Murrow in the film Goodnight and Good Luck. It's really kind of remarkable how much he looks like Murrow, and they did a really good job of uh, capturing the right angle and the right lighting so that it looks exactly like Murrow himself. But um, if you have ever heard Edward R. Murrow, uh, you'll know that this is what he really sounded like.
1: We
2: will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an
3: age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember
2: that we are not descended from fearful men.
0: So what's really sad is that, you know, straight has this great look, but his voice, unfortunately, is like mine. He's got this high voice that just doesn't quite have that voice of God authority that is so synonymous with Murrow. So in that sense, I felt that the film didn't capture Murrow's voice. But in another sense, by using Murrow's actual words for the script, they did capture what was essential about what made him him, voice not in the literal sense of what comes from his vocal cords, but his, th- his thumbprint as a writer, his signature, the thing that when he opened his mouth made you know that you were listening to Edward R. Murrow. That's what I want to get at today. It's a little bit like trying to nail jello to the wall, but I think that if anybody can do it, it's this group of people who I've invited because they, in one way or another, have thought about voice, or they use their voices in a special way. Um, I'll begin by introducing you to Ben Yagoda, who literally wrote the book on the subject, *The Sound on the Page*. Ben, would you tell people? And in paperback. Paper. Well.
2: <laughs> Economically priced. Tell people
0: who you are in sixty seconds.
2: Well, thank you, Dean. Um, <laughs> thanks for that question, and thanks for inviting me. And I, I really am excited to be here because I'm your perfect audience member because I love radio. I can't do it. I've never done it, but uh, I'm a huge fan. And, in fact, listening to people like Marty and Dean and Bob Edwards, uh, David Kestenbaum, Bob Garfield, Linda Wertheimer, et cetera, et cetera, was one of the things that got me going on this book, I, I'm, I'm a writer, I've been a magazine journalist, a book writer, I teach writing. So writing words on paper has been my life. I've been an editor. Um, and it struck me that a couple of years ago, I mean, I would thought about this for years, but it crystallized that the thing about writers that attracted me to them, to him or her, was that individual style Voice is the common metaphor nowadays. And in fact, to the extent that writers became like radio personalities. I mean, voice is a metaphor for writers. It's a reality for people on the radio. Um, And that that was what this book was about. It was trying to get at what it was that makes someone's style distinctive uh, as a writer. So uh, I'm delighted to be here to try to explore the parallels between writing for the page and writing and speaking on the radio.
0: The first time I thought seriously about what it means to have a voice as a radio reporter, it was when I was listening to Marty Goldenson, who at the time was the New York bureau chief for Marketplace. (coughs) And Marty, what would you like people to know about you in 60 seconds?
3: Um, First, that was very late in my career. You know, it speaks well for your age and youth. (laughs) Just a quick rundown. I've, I've, I've had a career now that's a perfect loop which is I started at WHYY in Philadelphia, uh, doing a program called Review of the Radical Press in the Vietnam days, and went on to be the news director of WBAI and then WNYC and then a stint at public television. And now I'm doing War News Radio, which is a real lot like Review of the Radical Press. It's just about a different war, but a lot of the same content. Um, teaching students to make public radio and uh, to find their own voices and for the show itself to find a voice, which is like a whole nother question. Um, throughout all this time, I've I've tried to to follow Jim Russell's instructions who hired me. He said to me when, I, when he wanted someone to be the, I think the first bureau chief in New York for Marketplace when it was just starting, he wanted me because he knew I would be sort of offbeat and funny and different and not make um, Pieces about uh, money boring. And so I made pieces about the matzah price fixing scandal and other things that were hysterical. And he said to me, Not everything is funny. <laughs> <clears throat> so I, between that and just Wall Street wearing on me, I got more and more serious. And then Jim called me and said, I didn't hire you to be like everybody else. <laughs> Which made me remem- So the job is. Not just to find your voice, but to have the guts to stick to it despite (laughs) your boss.
0: Pamela Z, the first thing I ever heard Pamela Z do sounds like this.
1: You
0: can have this uh, happen underneath you as you tell people who you are. This is Pamela Z. Uh, a work called Syrinx. She's a voice artist. She uses her voice. We feature this on the show. It involves slowed-down bird calls that get faster, and she sings along. And it's going to be hard to hear that both at the same time. Pamela Z is here because I believe that what she does is every much uh, of the same piece as what Marty Goldenson does, and uh, I hope by the end of this session that I will have made a case for that. It's one of the most exciting things about Third Coast that uh, journalists rub shoulders with sound artists, and I always get jazzed whenever I hear someone from another discipline, and uh, I get ideas that I can steal from my own work. Pamela Z, what would you like people to know about you in sixty seconds?
1: Um, that hello. Is this uh, on? Yeah. It, oh, I, I think you just—I think there's just no monitor up here. But um, well, I—I I find uh, it very hard to explain what I do in a short span of time because I have never been able to make up my mind and do just one thing. So um, I end up with these uh, long uh, hyphenated um, titles like composer, performer, sound artist, uh, vocalist, blah, 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 blah. Um, But the majority of the work that I've done throughout my life making work with sound has involved some... uh, a lot of human voice and um, most of the pieces I've ever made use my own voice, samples of it, speaking text, um, singing, making all kinds of sounds or uh, samples of other people's voices speaking and making sounds um, and then there's, you know, combined with that other sample, samples of, of, of found sounds, just concrete sounds that I've recorded, you know, um, traffic sounds and broken glass and and my dot matrix printer, uh, you know, or whatever uh, sounds interesting to me. And I guess the other uh, thing maybe that's distinctive about my work is that I find myself constantly on the border of two worlds that to me I don't understand why there, there's any difference between, or I do, but I don't see there as being a difference, but the—but most of the practitioners in, in them. Do, um, and that is music and sound art. Um, a lot of sound artists don't want their work to be considered music, and a lot of musicians don't think of their work as sound art, and to me, music and sound art are the same thing or parts of the same thing. Um, and my work has often sort of straddled or jumped back and forth between the, how most people see those worlds. So um, uh, I'm best known I think for my solo performances using voice and electronics, um, layering and looping and processing my voice in real time. But in recent years I've had a lot of experience also making sound pieces that are intended just to be heard um, often for radio and also sound installation pieces that actually are intended to go in an art art gallery Um, and then scores for um, dance companies um, a documentary film and um, and also i 've recently done some chamber music scores so um, so i 've kind of this broad body of work that i don 't quite know how to speak about in this short time, but that 's the best I can do with the reader 's digest version. <laughs>
0: In the New Yorker magazine this year, I read the most remarkable review of a book uh, written by Lynn Truss, the book Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, and it's a book about grammar and punctuation, and it's a screed against misuse of these elements of writing. And Louis Menand was the author of this review, and he wrote a scathing critique of this book. He just tore it to shreds. And then about two-thirds of the way through the book, he makes a dogleg, and he writes, one of the most mysterious of writing's immaterial properties is what people call voice. Editors sometimes refer to it in a phrase that underscores the paradox at the heart of the idea, the voice on the page. He goes on to make some brilliant points about voice, which I'll read from over the course of this session, and we'll also talk about some of these same ideas with this panel. Voice, I think, to paraphrase an old saw, it's not the most important thing. It's the only thing, even if what we're doing is reporting the news. Voice in the sense that I'm talking about, uh, having a, a signature style. Now, as I got to learn about this subject through Ben's book, I discovered that uh, although it's something that we face today, it's actually gone back thousands of years. That, that this is the, uh, what we, we now think about in terms of... Uh, how we should present ourselves on the radio is part of an ancient debate about the appearance well, of the author. You're right? so
2: right, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, it, it's a it's a pendulum uh, shifting is the image that comes to mind, and it started uh, several thousand years ago uh, with the ancient Greeks. Um, the first eloquent orator was Gorgias, also the first sophist. But that the negative connotations with that word came later. And uh, it wasn't writing, it was oratory, it was speaking. And it was, uh, that was the first swing of the pendulum towards expression, towards style, towards voice. It swung back with Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. And you know, the book that got me started on this book was Elements of Style by Strunk and White. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. But when you read Aristotle's comments on these issues, it could've come straight from the pages of Strunk and White. He said, style to be good must be clear. Clearness is secured by using the words, nouns and verbs alike that are current and ordinary. I mean, what he was talking about was transparency, really the opposite of what Dean said about style being the only thing. Um, That notion is that the content is the only thing, the matter, whereas the manner, the style should be transparent, almost like an umpire in baseball. You know, there's an old cliche that you only notice them when they mess up. The writing style should not be noticeable. So those two ideas have gone back and forth in the years since. Um, The Roman orators like Cicero brought it back towards expression, rhetoric, figures of speech, uh, and that was taken up in the Renaissance. Uh, they compiled lists of you know, hundreds and hundreds of figures of speech like metonymy and zeugma and synecdoche and all these things. Um, then this pendulum swung back the other way to people like Jonathan Swift who felt in words exactly or almost exactly the same as earlier Aristotle and later Strunk and White, that clarity and simplicity were the only things. Uh, It swung back to the expression side for the last or second to last time during the 19th century when people like Walter Pater uh, and John Ruskin cultivated their own voices, their own styles and this was the romantic era when uh, George Buffon said, style is the man himself. That idea that style was the way one expressed oneself, man or woman him or herself, he would have said if he were around today. Um, Then the next pendulum swing was pretty much the whole 20th century. The commentary uh, was clarity, simplicity, Fowler's modern English usage, George Orwell's politics in the English language, leading up to Strunk and White. I said that was the second to last possibly swing because more recently there's been another swing back to the self-expression end of things. And that word voice, as applied to writing, is uh, an example of that or representative of that. I'm not sure when that first was used. I'm sure it was fairly recently. Um, but now you cannot go to the uh, to the bookstore without seeing books about how to find your voice, how to develop your voice, where your voice is hidden, uh, and so forth. Um, so that is a very common idea today. I think there are some perils with that idea because it's, there are really two elements in this equation. There's the speaker, writer, communicator, and then there's the reader, uh, listener, audience member on the other end. Um, the emphasis on voice self-expression sometimes leaves that listener or reader out of the equation.
0: I want to clarify gorgeous is not how he looked, it was his name, G-O-R-G-I-A-S. And, uh, but his, he was espousing gorgeous writing. Um, I have a, another quote that I wanna read and have people talk about. This is W.H. Auden, the poet, writing to the editors of The Nation magazine. I do not care for movies very much and I rarely see them. This was in 1944. Further, I am suspicious of criticism as the literary genre, which, more than any other, recruits epigones, pedants without insight, intellectuals without love. I am all the more surprised, therefore, to find myself not only reading Mr. Agee, this is James Agee, who was the film critic at the time, before I read anyone else in the nation, but also consciously looking forward all week to reading him again. So what Auden is saying is that the subject matter meant absolutely nothing to him. He kind of despised film, but he was so in love with A.G.'s um, style that he made a point of reading this every day, uh, every week. I am in a similar situation with my favorite podcast, which I'm going to share with you now, uh, about 30 seconds.
4: Don and Drew 3105. Get ready, baby. Yeah, yeah, oh, the Don and Drew show. Hey Pussycats, it's the Don and Drew show for March 1st, 2005. I'm Don Maselli.
1: And I'm Drew Domkis.
4: Can you believe it's March 1st already?
1: I cannot believe that.
4: W-T-F. Ah. (laughs) Say it, Drew. W-T-F. say say what it means.
0: What the fudge?
4: Oh, Drew. (laughs) You're such a Christian.
0: (laughs) So Don and Drew, they're this young couple, they live in Wisconsin, they're stoners. They say nothing of substance. They talk about stupid stuff. They, they you know, it's borderline pornographic and um, really childlike, childish. And I am transfixed whenever I listen to them, <laughs> because they are nothing but voice. They are my James Agee, basically. And I listen to them because when I hear them, I, I can't stop. They, it's very interesting to hear this. In that 30 seconds, you got a sense of their dynamic. Um, she's the tough one who's always chiding him he's the straight man and you really get the sense that they're just being themselves in front of you for a half an hour every day I can't get enough of it Um, Pamela did you ever hear anything like that before this was actually on the radio uh, throughout much of the 20th century the the tradition of the kitchen table show the Fitzgeralds, Ed and and Peggy Fitzgerald used to do this where you would like listen in on their conversation and it didn't matter what they say
1: well, I think sometimes that uh, for me i am I am the most drawn to just people's characters and um, to 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 a fault sometimes i mean I really do care more about um, i find um, hearing people being themselves if 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 I find them interesting <laughs> I find that so fascinating that uh, i I could listen for hours or but you know, to something that doesn't go anywhere, and um, and I remember, uh, you know, when I was a kid, my sister and I used to play. Our way of playing together was to to create these little sort of dramas, um, which later became these little fake. When it, when we got tape recorders, it became little fake radio programs that I, I used to like to make. But we would actually create these characters and just on the fly, just sort of act out things they were saying and doing. And and my sister was so concerned about that things would happen for these characters or that what you know what the trajectory of the story was and I was much more interested in just developing like how this character would say a certain thing or what their what their um just the kind of language they liked to use and to the point that I just would, you know, my, my parts of the stories often wouldn't go anywhere they, I was just wallowing in the character themselves and I, I think that sort of is reflective of, of my intention sometimes which is not so much about content as in linear content but, some, but about the, the brush stroke of, of what the sound does for me
0: You
3: know, I, 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 first of all I was really happy to hear you made fake radio programs with the <laughs> program and your kid, because so did I. Oh, did you? Yay. Yeah, where we made fun of the neighbor's parents. and It was just fabulous. Um, um, my brother and I actually, when we were 10 years old and 11, strung a, a, a wire and a microphone into the next house, which was 100 yards away, over the tetherball pole and into their house, and would act, just actually taped what they were doing on our old white wall and sack reel-to-reel. <laughs> Until my father explained to us, you know, that this was illegal, unethical, and everything else, and we said, up, yeah, well, listen to the tapes," you know. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Um, but anyway, I, I swing wildly back and forth on this issue of what radio should be, because in some ways, um, back when they were designing morning morning edition, um, there was a battle over the Robert Krulwichian side, which wanted to have some character to fall in love with, to deliver the news, tangentially deliver the news, or in and among the news, you would basically have some version of Howard Stern, I miss slash Bob Edwards, some person to fall in love with and amuse you and be creative in the morning the whole country would fall in love with. And that was one group. And the other group, which my dear friend Larry Josephson, would call the numbers Nazis. We're also realists. They, want, they felt public radio was factual. It was not about falling in love with characters. It was about facts. And more importantly, it was about letting the local stations jump in at 11 minutes before the hour. Just ring a bell. And all those, you know how the clock works in the morning. Um, you know who won that battle. Um, and in some ways, it's great. And Morning Edition is huge and has an enormous audience. It doesn't have fifty million people, which it might have had, and and maybe it would have, you know, had some loss journalistically. I'm not sure, but that in that enormous battle was sort of what we're talking about: how much voice, how much transparency, you know, would you have? Um, you know, Marketplace and Jim Russell, who started that, and. Other programs had this idea that you don't have to choose, that you can have characters. So, if you don't mind my leading into something, I wanted to make the argument that sometimes, that often, um, if you're transparent, you don't explain even the most complicated technical thing you want to explain, and one day, um, John Barth, now with PRX, assigned me, he was the news director over there, to um, explain, well, it'll just, it'll roll by itself, if you can find it.
0: I have it. Good. I think I know what you're talking about.
3: You know what's frightening about the savings and loan crisis? Not the SNLs that have died. They're gone. Let them go. As my mom says, life is for the living. What's frightening aren't the dead banks, but the zombie banks, the living dead. Those are the SNLs that are bankrupt but still open. These banks, which walk the landscape between 9 and 3, spend much of their time killing off good banks. No kidding. There are about 400 of these undead banks right now. Let me explain. When SNLs get into trouble, it takes regulators a really long time to figure out what to do with them. So a lot of thrifts that are insolvent, that is, already dead, keep the doors open for business, waiting to be officially buried or put in the healthy body of another SNL, some kind of merger. What's outrageous is that during this waiting period, the zombies do something only the undead would have the nerve to do. They offer high interest. They've got to. Otherwise, no one would risk a deposit in a bank that was known to be dead. Of course, they can't afford to pay for long, but they don't care because they're not afraid of going under. They are under and federally insured. Other marginal banks hate this because they have to compete, and more of them go under, adding to the ranks of the living dead. But the zombies are happy. For them, it's like competing in a demolition derby covered by no fault. Where will it all end? M. Danny Wall, who chairs the Home Loan Bank Board, told Congress it would take four years to bury all the zombies. This is the same guy who said it would all cost $15 billion, which is now up to $55 billion. By that same rhetorical growth curve, it'll actually take nearly 20 years to find burial space for all the zombies. What a wonderful country this is. All over the world, people are waiting in line for food and consumer goods. Here in America, business is so dynamic, you make money while standing in line for years to go bankrupt. In New York, I'm Marty Goldenson for Marketplace.
0: You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard editors say to reporters that they should get out of the way of their material and let the tape speak for itself and not to intrude. And this is, I think, the best refutation ever of that statement. What do
2: you think? Yeah, no tape. (laughs) Uh, I mean, uh, I I, uh, bristle a bit at Dean's uh, comparison of James A. G. and is it Don and Drew? I mean, uh, I see that there's a little bit of an interest in, in these incredibly vapid people being vapid and not having no qualms about it, and yeah, it was, it was, it was somewhat entertaining. But, if, um, you know, I couldn't care less about savings and loans. Is, is that what it was about, I think? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was about. But it was I about it. me. I love the piece, um, and I think that's what Auden was talking about. I mean, he didn't like movies, he didn't like reviewing as a genre, but he loved the way Agee's mind worked and the way he expressed the way his mind worked and his personality in his writing. So um, it's, it's, it's not just, it, it's not the case that everybody's personality is, is equally worthy of attention.
0: Do you feel there are times that people need to get out of the way of their material?
2: <laughs> uh, um, well, you, I, did, didn't you say in an email, Marty back me up on this, we shouldn't say need to? <laughs> that was the ground rule. Uh, you know, I, I do think it's a big world, and I think that um, a lot of it depends on the person who is doing that communicating, whether it's writing or radio. I mean, someone like Marty is very comfortable and likes to have a big voice in there and not attempt to get out of the way of the material. I think getting out of the way of the material is a fiction. Um, I think that uh, there's no way to be completely transparent. So whether you have a noticeable voice or you merely use the accepted conventions, uh, the mix of tape and I disagree with this. Uh, My experience
3: is that every piece you do, when you go into it, you have no idea whether it's a collage, pure actuality, 100% writing, a mix, whether you're going to just give a little lecture and have somebody peek in with actuality. You, you have to do the piece and collect the tape and do the research. And then there's this moment when you say, what is the format here? And I think there is an ideal format. I don't think um, when you're done, piece. for each piece, there's an ideal format. I did a piece 20 years ago called The Lemon Ice King of Corona. He makes Italian ices and Corona queens. He is, you know him, right? Uh, <laughs> wonderful, right? Peter Benferramo, The world's least articulate man. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with this piece, and I came back with this tape. And I said to my brother Dick, who was a wonderful journalist, uh, investigator journalist for Newsday. I can't do this piece. And he said, no, 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 no. You're just not creative enough <laughs> And to do this piece, which pissed me off. So I went back to him and I had him read a list of his 29 flavors. And then I wrote the piece and between each syllable I had him, or phrase, I had him say a flavor. So it sort of went like on the corner of 57th Fifty-second Avenue, Rainbow, and you know 30 Street in the on Corona you know, in Corona Queens, Rum Raisin. There's a and I just told the story and I let some machinery sounds come in, and when I finished, um, and I let him say the actual words because he did have a lot of wonderful nearly racist things to say. The Jews like lemon. You know. like... And other weird stuff, but I let whenever the word "like" would come up a flavor i 'd let him say it. but the point was there was an ide- absolutely ideal format for each piece and i 've done many I, I, I did the recent piece from Palm Springs about the palm springs Follies, which is a hysterical octogenarian, energetic flora show, a burlesque with old people it 's unbelievably funny by the way and I said next to nothing, in the sort of Sarah Fishgo tradition, if you know Sarah. Um, because they were funny, and I would have been competing with it. But more than that, it just needed structure. You just need to miniaturize their two-hour program to get a feeling for it. You had to get out of the way because it demanded it. The tape was great. It was, and, that's, and then, and if you start to write in that, you say, you feel yourself saying, oh, this is about me, but it's not about me. You know, it's, It shouldn't be about you, it should be about what you're covering.
2: Well, you know, um, it sounds like radio really is different. I mean, I come at it from a print perspective, and I know that if I know, I know, because were... you said
3: Schenectady, and really Synecdoche,
2: which I've never been to. But what about Utica? What? Utica? I've never taken okay. it. Okay. Um, you know, I know that when when, say, you write a profile of some coming film star or rock group for Rolling Stone, which I used to do, and I used to read, but I've stopped doing both, because it's just so formatted. It opens up with the scene, then there's the quote, then there's the nut graph with the facts about the recent yes. film, and then there's a quote from somebody else, then there's the background, it all started, so on so, then you bring it back up what's to the that. Does, does
1: it have to be that way? Well, does it doesn't have to
2: be. Does mean, it doesn't need to be, we can't say need needs to be.
1: My, my, I mean, I, this, these kind of discussions are, are always, odd to me because, and maybe it's because I'm, I'm not really a journalist I'm a sound artist and I'm and so for me there's no rules about what it is that I'm even trying to accomplish um, so there's nothing about like well you know I'm trying to do a documentary on this subject and I need to make sure I really yeah, But you still have
3: to decide whether you're amusing you just yourself or conveying something Well
1: right? I, I think that um, well I, you know I I, I like to think that just by making it what seems to be good to me, hopefully will also be good for someone else. It's, it's, the,
2: it's the difference between art and commerce. I mean, you're on the art side. The Rolling Stone profile is on the commerce side. But I'll and tell maybe you, you're creatively in the middle.
1: Some, some, the, a thing that happens to me all the time, because um, one of my very typical processes for creating a work is something I was, I was just um, talking about this earlier today that it, it's... it's uh, I start out the way a journalist starts out. I often start by uh, selecting some several subjects and interviewing them on tape. But I know even when I'm doing this that my goal is not going to be to make a piece that Uh, you know, pulls the best bits of their interview and conveys a nice little story about that person or it's because I want the sound of their voice and their language and and I know from the very start that I'm going to play with it and probably cut it up to where it's no longer recognizable. But yet, the way I conduct the interview... Is, is as if I'm going to do a news story. I, I go in and I sit down with the person and I ask them questions and I record them and we have a really long conversation and I'll do this with several people and then I will go into the studio and I will start making regions out of words that they said and creating pieces that I layer. But a funny thing happens a lot of times. Um, my idea from the very beginning is to make something in the end that's quite abstract and not necessarily having a linear storyline or making some very specific comment or revealing some very particular truth so why did to you anyone. Start,
3: you start with the tape because you want to capture their Voice almost in the abstract. They're really. I want to
1: capture. I'm. I'm like a. I'm like a person who's about to make stew, and they go out in the garden and start picking vegetables. Like I'm just gathering, or you know, somebody who goes to the paint store and p- picks up a bunch of colors. I'm gathering the the paint that I'm going to use to to make my picture, or the clay mm. that I'm going to sculpt from, mm. and and then I put it into Pro Tools and I cut up phrases. And I frequently am looking for things like I ask several people some questions, and then I find that all all five of these people said the same phrase when I ask them a certain question and I love that so I'll find that phrase in each of the interviews and then stack them all on top of each other in Pro Tools and make a layer of them all well, you saying should the stay same home. phrase. I'll send you my outtakes. And uh, Yeah, uh, please yeah. do. Because it's exactly that. <laughs> and, I, and then I make the piece out of that and sometimes I end up with a piece that's entirely that one phrase and I interviewed each of these people for an hour and 45 minutes and then uh, from each of them I, I take, you know... Mm four seconds or something and make the entire piece. Um, But another thing sometimes happens to me, and that is that as I'm sitting there in Pro Tools cutting these little regions, making these little pieces that I'm going to build like a piece of art out of, I start getting really attached to the stories that these people told me. And then I I start making longer and longer regions because I want to keep this content. And then before I know it, the thing I've built starts to sound more like a documentary than a piece of... Sound art. You
3: and jump the wall I, to our side.
1: Then you know? I get concerned because then I think, oh dear, am I, am I moving into somebody else's territory? And if I do this, does it mean I have to do it right? And maybe I'm not following the correct rules if I let it be this. And you know, and so I have all these pieces that are like, what are these? Are, the, are these documentary? Are they, is it a sound art piece? And And then it's just whatever it is. And I never, to answer your earlier question about like, do you have to like decide what it's going to, you know, what you're giving to the audience, I never, I never, when I'm creating it, say I have to make it this way because I'm going, I'm doing it for this particular audience. Because there is no specific audience for what I'm doing. There's just <laughs> whoever, a strange little handful of people are into this, <laughs> you know. Um, and I put it out there, and some people like it, but there, it's, it, it does make it difficult to find a. It's funny because that doesn't frighten
3: me, in terms mm-hmm. of your art, because it's beautiful. But I did get frightened in the podcast meeting just an hour ago because that, a lot of what I heard seemed, I don't know, sort of, how did you put it, sort of random, vapid. yeah, it seemed vapid, yeah. And and I, I know that vapid actually often moves much faster than highly edited stuff. I tell my students who are making more news radio that, you know, you got you're moving in and out of four actualities and six different interviews, and you've got 22 edits, and you've got a two-minute-long piece that feels like an hour, because it's like so much work to listen to it, and you can't. Whereas if you did a 20-minute-long piece of a single story that was told well, mm-hmm. it just you want more. It disappears in a minute. You sit in the driveway waiting for it to end. You can't mm-hmm. believe it. You couldn't drive slowly enough, you know, to get home slowly enough to hear the whole thing. So there, there is that, you know, sort of problem with it. But I. It, it, it worries me with the, sort of with the podcasting thing that you, people are falling in love with their work and not, I think it's okay for artists, but I don't think it's all right for radio people who are trying to not just put stuff out there, but to convey something, to not worry at all about whether or not it's conveying anything.
0: On the matter of voice and finding one's own voice. I want to ask Ben Yagoda, who is Willie
1: Mitchell?
2: Yeah, um, this this tape is something that was uh, an interview on um, uh, World Cafe with David Dye. uh, And just to set it up just a little bit, the idea of voice, distinctive voice and style is something you find in all the arts. Um, Painting, I mean, a, a farmhouse by Van Gogh or Picasso, the same farmhouse, the content is exactly the same. What we look for is that style. Uh, a, a solo on the same chorus of All the Things You Are by Lester Young versus Charlie Parker. Same content, same song. The style is so important and so different. And Al Green, obviously, um, uh, being a singer with an incredibly distinctive style, you, know, you just recognize it in a nanosecond, the same way if your mother called you on the phone, that instant you would know who it was. Um, and the thing that this illustrates is sometimes people associate style with ornamentation, like adding a little style to the piece, um, a little synecdoche or alliteration or some fancy metaphors or Tom Wolfe-type pyrotechnics. But... Often, getting that style is really going the other way. Um, and, and Willie Mitchell, to answer Dean's question, was the, the producer who took the young Al Green under his wing.
0: I should say this. The question he's answering is, what did you sound like before Willie Mitchell found you?
4: Oh, man, I would sound like, I'm so tired of being alone. I'm so tired. I was trying to sound like Willie, uh, Wilson Pickett, uh, James Brown. I was trying to sound like uh, whoever else was on the market, because I didn't have no Al Green. I didn't know who Al Green was, so Willie Mitchell kept saying, "He kept cutting the tape off and go running back to the beginning and says, Sing like Al Green. <laughs> and I'm going like, uh, Willie, I really appreciate it, but I don't know how Al Green supposed to sound? He said, well, we're going to cut until you do. <laughs> so I got mad. I went outside. I took my Corvette, did donuts in front of the studio, spin my wheels. I left. And uh, I came back about two and a half hours later. And Willie started smiling and says, mm-hmm. I knew he'd come back. <laughs> Ah, uh, the guy says, sitting by him, so how you know? He says, if he got what I think he's got in him, he'll come back. <laughs> so I said, hey, man, what about this dang song? Uh, uh, he said, don't scream and try to sing something you're not. And so I said, okay, just knock the song. He says, and I said, I don't want to hear it. Just knock the song on. I said, I'm not going to put no feeling in it. I'm not going to put no emotion in it. I'm just going to sing it dry. And so the song came on and I said, I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do is all right with me. Like that. <laughs> and Willie Mitchell stopped the tape and said, that's how Green! <laughs> when he sings that, I get
0: chills when he just is being dry. It is the most emotionally powerful moment. How did you find your voice, Pamela?
1: Um, remember where you put things next time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, how did I? I think, um, I think machines helped me find it which is sort of a strange thing to say, because a lot of the comments that I get from people when they hear my work is they say, oh, you work with technology, but your work has is so human. And a lot of people who work with technology, their work is really cold, and I just think your work is so warm and so human. And yet I feel like um, that the way I was able to find what I do is because I started playing with machines. Um, because before I was playing with machines, I was sort of doing norm uh, trying to do songs like what other people who I liked did and when i started playing with uh digital delay this is like in the early 80s i started playing with digital delay loops and other kinds of processing and also with just taking little pieces of text and editing and cutting them up and i when i learned that there's all this melodic material in a piece of spoken text and when i learned that um that if you take one phrase and re- and repeat it uh, perfectly a, 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 a number of times that some other sound starts to emerge that 's when I started having that's where that 's where a lot where I think my voice came from so I would
3: argue that you found in yourself a style you didn 't know was there that you liked mm-hmm. and and, and that isn't necessarily the real you, that somehow you discover your real voice. I don't think you do. I think, especially on radio, mm-hmm. that the voice is a kind of conceit. Um, it's an exaggeration of you um, that takes into account that you can't see in radio, and it, it's extremely you know, one-dimensional, but,
1: but, maybe, but that
3: follows your contours and feels real, but it's, it's an but, invention.
1: But maybe it's not. Maybe it's about the fact that... Um to, to, to me, it's like, what happened when I started using machines? Well, I started listening. Mm-hmm. Like when you are, you know, like it, what Al Green was saying and somebody else was saying earlier, oh, oh <laughs> I was in a different session, talking about trying to sound like some other reporter they admired, um, and it, they had to stop trying to do that before they sounded like, like themselves or found what their voice was. Um, I think when you're doing that, when you have like, people that you admire, or, or music, if you're a composer that you admire, and you're trying to do more of those, um, you're not really listening to what it is that you're doing. You're trying to recreate something you've heard before. And I think that when I started working with, um, it, it, it had to do with something that Brian Eno calls happy accidents, trying to use a piece of uh, equipment that I didn't really understand how to use. And so what, what I, if I had succeeded at exactly what I was trying to do, it probably would have been boring. But instead I was trying to do something and didn't know what I was doing, so something else came out. And that... That something else surprised me, so I paid attention. And then I learned something from that. And I'm really learning to listen then in a different way. And I'm starting to listen to little nuances of what's going on. And then from that listening, I learn a a huge amount. And then I begin building on what I heard when I did this new kind of listening. And that's sort of what I I think maybe Mm -hmm. finding the voices about. But I have something else I want to say. And that is... um, you know, there seems to be this sort of like an argument or like people are seeing there as being some kind of a, um, a dichotomy or something between like a person who just, you know, and I guess, again, it's like thinking from the standpoint of a journalist and what you're supposed to be doing when you present a news story or something documentary. But that you're either, you know, that the one way to do it is to try to be totally dry and objective and present this material and the other way is to, you know, be clever and, and present it in some way that sort of draws attention to your clever style of doing it. And that this is one way and that's the other way and this is, it's one bad, other good or one good, other bad or something like that. And what I think it is is that each artist and so, therefore, probably each journalist as well has their own strengths and and you know something that's brilliant about them and 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 uh, not everybody can do the same things but uh Therefore, there should be this hard and fast rule that this is the approach you should have. Um, and and the, the analogy that I want to make is that in, in the sound uh, world or like in the electronic music world, the big argument, uh, the big, and this has gone on for years and years before even laptop music was, uh, you know, came to, into existence, is that you'd go to an electronic music concert and it's a bunch of guys sitting behind black boxes and um, turning knobs and, uh, in, in, a, in a white sort of room with, you know, just a long table like this and a bunch of guys sitting behind things just twiddling knobs. And um, in those days, the only people who were interested in electronic music were people who really, really were interested in it for sonic reasons. And they would go to these events because they wanted to listen. They didn't care that it was a bunch of nerdy-looking guys and that you couldn't see much movement on stage. You weren't there to see a visual thing. Um, And then when electronic music moved into this arena where it suddenly everyone is doing it and it's, it's got a much bigger audience, suddenly it became an issue of like, well, when we go to a show, we want to see something. And so all these people who used to twiddle knobs now feel that they have to like throw some images up on a screen or do some, get some kind of like, do start acting or doing some kind of performance on stage. And, and my feeling about that is there are people who, their strength is some kind of physical pre- presentation. And, and for those people... That is an important component of the work. But there are people whose strength is just making something sonic. And, and for those people, that should be the focus. And we shouldn't be saying that, well now- No, no, I,
3: I completely agree with you that, that it's, you can't have a dichotomy, you mm-hmm. can't say there's a right way and a wrong way.
1: Yeah. I'm
3: actually saying, and that's right, and if people mm-hmm. get into that instructions, they start doing stuff on automatic that they're not mm-hmm. even good at. That's right. not even them. I'm saying something else, which if you're a young producer and you're looking for your voice, mm-hmm. Right. you're not going to find something like utterly authentic that's the real you and have a big <laughs> aha experience. I I Why would not? argue. Why not? Well, I would argue that the medium itself is a third thing. Mm-hmm. It's just like when you go to a, a, a when you make when you shoot a documentary or when you're working with tape and you use people use the expression, "Oh, they talk as if the microphone weren't there." Well, but they really not. Something sort of a third thing has happened, which is how people are when cameras and
2: microphones are on them, they're, they're not completely themselves. Do you, you know, Marty, what the etymology of the word personality is? No. i well, gonna tell you. It's persona, which means mask. Ah, well, there it is. You've got to find the mask
3: that fits. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've got to find the mask that fits and feels really comfortable and follows the contours of your face. And I would argue on that green clip that you played that he's found this very... I would argue, more gentle, more restrained version of him. The real him may have been halfway between the screaming and that utterly restrained thing that worked so much magic.
0: Because the way he tells that story is in that middle ground. Yeah. He is a very excitable person.
3: Yeah, but in fact, he had, for it to convey some emotion to other people, so it worked for his producer and ultimately the audience, he had to come up with some self that was not his true self exactly, but he loved it.
0: So how do you find that self? Mm.
1: How do you know it's not his true self? Because our true selves are so multifaceted. Well,
3: once know? in a while it is. I mean, I think of my friend Larry Josephson, who sort of does what he calls the open raincoat radio. You know? he just, <laughs> he is the, he's utterly, he's the least insecure person I know on the radio, so he never watches himself intellectually like he's going to make a mistake. So he's totally unguarded. Um, he doesn't like himself at all, so he never tries to ingratiate himself into the audience because he doesn't like himself. So he just is completely the same, whether he's on the air or not on the air. He's the only example I ever found of it.
2: I, th- I think what it, what it is, is it's, it's not the true self and it's not an untrue self. It's a version of yourself. So if it's bogus or false in any way that is immediately clear, and it just doesn't work. But I, I do agree with Marty that that idea of finding your true self, is, it's, it's probably impossible. But it's some aspect of yourself that just works, and you have to experiment around and, and listen to the influences and all that until you find it. And it
3: that very much goes to what you said earlier, which is you've got to go with your strengths. If you find exactly. you have a gift at yeah. certain stuff, go with that stuff. And I
1: think if you, if you have a gift at... I mean, I think people confuse... Um, Deadpan with honesty. Um, for some people, deadpan is 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 much more fake, you know. And so I think that um, I mean a lot of times when I've taught like sound art and performance courses, um, and then I have students who like they start gesturing and doing something, and I'm like, "What is that?" And they're like, "Well, you know, I was trying to do a kind of a Pamela Z thing or, or something like that." And I I laugh and I say, "Well, you know, um, you should just." Do, do something that's, everything you do should be really honest and really true. And then they st- get all restrained. And I'm like, no, I've watched you and you're not restrained. So I don't know why you think being restrained is honest or true. Um, and so it's, I think that sometimes when, s- some people who are very successful and their voice may be this really kind of catching thing that, that, that people love because it, it has some kind of flamboyance to it. And then other people say, oh, okay, so how come that person can get away with it? Well, that person can get away with it because when, it, when it's coming from that person, it's true. So, you know, maybe that's kind of the kernel of what voice is about. And, yeah, and, and it does,
3: you know. I mean, there is something authentic in the sense that, you know, I was the third kid in my family. You get no attention at the dinner table. You're the youngest. You know this, right? And so the only way I could get attention was to be funny. hmm and so I crafted it over the years, and I got good at timing and trying to get some attention. And, you know, and my sibs would tease me because I couldn't read yet, but I was already funnier than they were. Mm-hmm. And so you, know, you develop that over a lot of years, and you might as well put that in your radio pieces or whatever else it is. Maybe you're a good listener, unlike me, you know, or something.
0: But, <laughs> we're going but, to have to uh, turn yeah. it over to the people who want to ask questions soon. Yeah. So I wanted to leave you with another bit from this piece of amazing writing by Louis Manon, who also comes to the same conclusion that we just did today about the uselessness of voice as a metaphor for talking about these matters. He says, whenever you meet a writer and you hear how that writer's voice actually sounds, it's inevitably disappointing and you want to run because the writer has had a chance to think things through and become the better person, and it's not spontaneous when you're writing. You have all the time in the world to make it great. So, a better basis, he writes. A better basis than speaking, for the metaphor of voice in writing, is singing. You can't tell if someone can sing or not from the way she talks, and although natural phrasing and from the heart are prized attributes of song, singing that way requires rehearsal, preparation, and getting in touch with whatever it is inside singers that, by a neural kink or the grace of God, enables them to turn themselves into vessels of musical sound. What writers hear when they are trying to write is something more like singing than like speaking. You buy that?
3: That's wonderful. If I could write like that, I'd get out of radio.
0: He's the best. (laughs) Uh, I want to give you an opportunity before we're told it's time to leave to ask questions of these remarkable people uh, who this is your chance to to hear how it's done from people who do it.
2: While they're thinking, I I just had one more comment that I think uh, is probably worth making. It comes up from something Pamela was saying about influence, I mean, influence, copying, imitation, a lot of those are harsh words, but it, it it ends up being very important. I mean, everyone as they're coming up has these voices, sounds, styles in their head and somehow has to work through them. I mean, if you look at just one line of influence, very rarely there's someone who's incredibly, totally original. And you could argue that Gertrude Stein was such a person and no one had written like her before maybe there are some parallels but I'm not aware of it. Of course she was virtually unread she was too original but then along came Hemingway who was influenced by her and came up with this amazing strong style and voice Um, now of course sometimes when you have too strong a voice you can't it. There There's nothing you could do for an encore, so that was his problem. But then Hemingway influenced, you know, Elmore Leonard, Raymond Chandler, Joan Didion, Pete Hamill, and others in very productive different directions. So um, it's rarely the case that someone's going to be totally original, but more, much more often, more fruitfully, using a creative imitation or creative variation on someone that came before.
0: Uh, c- can you please come to the microphone to ask your questions?
2: Um, this might be tangential, but I think a lot of this uh, discussion about how you find your own voice can be applied as well to how you find other people's voices. So I'm curious if, if you can comment a little bit about how you know when someone else is, is speaking in a voice that's really honestly theirs and, and really translates well to radio.
0: Do you have a, anyone in particular you want to answer that question? No, just the whole panel. Uh, for grabs?
1: Uh, what I, was that
3: technique, you were going to say you used. You sat around listening for a long time, getting these tapes. You must have had a technique.
1: Um, well, I I don't know that I have like a technique that I think is some tried and true technique. But I I just think that um, we have to use our our ears. Just like how do you know when when you when you um, when you taste a, a bite of food that um, that you like that this is well prepared or this is good food? Um, well you know, if you've studied the art of cooking and you know all about, oh, this is, it's clear that this person has folded the egg whites in properly before they did it, you may know all of that kind of stuff too, but in the end, you just have to kind of listen to your taste buds and say, may- maybe so, but I don't want to eat any more of this, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that a lot of times it's just um, and I think who, it, dep- it depends on the, ear- the hearer who's going to think something seems authentic or seems good, you know, but um, I I do think it just comes from, you know, listening in an open, in in an open way, um, to...
3: I would also say, wear them down. Uh, we're making this show right now called War News Radio out of Swarthmore College. Log in, by the way, warnewsradio.org. And so we Skype, you know what Skype is? Everybody knows what Skype is, right? It's this high-quality way of calling people as if there's an ISDN line into their house in Fallujah, you know? So we dial up some random pharmacist from Fallujah after the Constitution is passed, to see what they think of it. And we do not even know who we're interviewing. And then we try to figure out, get them, we try to get their authentic voice. And so we talk to them. Fortunately, we have this little phone card that drops it down to 17 cents a minute. It can take up to an hour of conversation before we figure out where they're coming from. Are they Sunnis? Are they angry? Are they Shia and hope it works? Are they Kurds and think it already has worked for them? Um, how did, did they feel um, happy that Saddam is on trial but angry because it's humiliating anyway because it's an American-made room that he's sitting in um, and they don't open up for about an hour so part of the answer is wear him down you can almost hear a change in the timbre of the voice when a person gets real I mean I'm sure you're all your, your interviewers you know it you can, there's a snapping point Wait for it, be really patient, Patient. bring lots of tape, don't
2: use, you know, bring lots of tape and lots of batteries. I would say that the single biggest enemy of voice, distinctive style, is one word, cliche. So to be aware of cliche in your own work writing and also in someone you're interviewing or talking to, in other words, if they say the phrase at the end of the day,
0: Mm. Someone once asked Alex Chadwick how he knew if something was a cliche, and his answer was, "If you've heard it before, don't say it." I once heard that um, we
4: should use. There was someone in public radio who said we should use cliches because everyone knows then what you mean. (laughs) Who said that? I'm not saying. I have a question for Pamela Z. Um,
0: I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit more about what you started to tell us when you take your, your interviews and you like them and you line them up on your, your Pro Tools and they become longer and longer. How do you resolve with yourself it, what they end up being? Do they become documentaries? Are you becoming a radio documentarian? Are you staying? You know, How, do you, how have you decided maybe with a piece that you've done?
1: It depends on the situation. Each time it happens, uh, it ends up a different way. And I think I, the only way I'm able to resolve that is by listening to the work. And I think there was something uh, that Marty said earlier about um, every. there's a right format for every piece. But the problem is that you don't know what that is. The piece has to tell you. And so when I'm... Ma- when I'm making something, sometimes I, I have an urge to go one direction or another direction with it, and sometimes I just have to sit back and listen to it and say, well, what, what, why do I like this? What's good about this? And then let that be what I'm doing with it, um, even though I may be fighting doing whatever that is. Um, so I, I guess uh, in some cases I ended up... Uh, bouncing back and forth. Like uh, one example is um, this piece I have called Geek Speak that some of you may have heard um, where I was interviewing a bunch of programmers. This was like in 1995 and uh, I was really interested in the fact that they were using a language that at the time to most people would sound like a foreign language. Nowadays, it's, it's, it's amusing to me now that you listen to it and almost every term in it is something that every single person in the western society knows now but in those days it sounded like foreign language and i found that really interesting and my idea was just to chop up all these little words and make this you know piece that was just you know chop salad out of it but I was liking longer and longer phrases. Well, what I ended up doing is that in some of the sections of the piece, it's just layered one or two words, repeating, 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 and it sounds like music almost. And then it breaks into a little segment where all of a sudden you're getting full sentences, and you can tell I've asked them all a question, and this is all of their answers to that question. Then it goes back to the you know, layers. And so sometimes I just surrender myself to the hybridness. Um,
3: also, also, you evolve. You, know, you evolve. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you do these like, short things, and then they don't please you anymore. And the mm-hmm. longer, then you got to do different stuff.
1: Right. And, and, in, and in a different situation. Or like, you know, just let go of what I thought that it was supposed to be and let it be what it, what it is telling me it's supposed to be. Hmm.
4: The term true voice has been used a lot. But if someone uses the same voice every day and doesn't consciously think about that, how is that any different from their true voice? Or is it
2: well, one of the people I interviewed in the book was uh, Harold Bloom, who, who made a comment that I'm still trying to figure out, but I think it was very deep. Um, he said that we hear ourselves hundreds of times a day, but we overhear ourselves maybe once or twice a year. Um, and that, that brought back to me the, the, the memory we all have of the first time we heard our own voice on tape Um, how strange it sounds. Does it still sound strange when you hear your voice? I'm used to it, but it took 20 years. Yeah, it took 20 years. Um, So, yeah, that that, that speaking voice, um, you know, there is something true and profound. I think the voice we've been talking about goes beyond just the sound of that literal voice. I I think I have a problem in that, like, every story that I do, I feel like is in a
0: different voice and not necessarily just because the subject matter is different, but I'm afraid to um, find my true voice because I'm worried I'll discover that I'm an asshole. Um, So it's like, you know, what happens if you find your true voice and you don't like it? Yeah. It's funny because it's
3: sort of the same answer I was going to give to the previous person, which is... um, Part of finding the true voice is—it's the same thing you do when you lie down on the psychiatrist's couch, which is, you find out in what ways you're compensating, in what ways you're defensive, in what ways you're angry, and you—you you sort of—it's—it's the, it's the same process. And in what ways you're an asshole, right? And—and and you've got to go with that sort of core of you that's not, um, and repair the other parts of you. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. There's—there's there's just there there is no choice but i think if you do more and more pieces i think you'll find that there's a, there's a and this is what i was argument i was making earlier that there is the radio you that is not exactly you and maybe not as vulnerable and maybe a little bit more, uh or more vulnerable or whatever works on the air it exaggerates some little part of you it drops other parts it pulls the best communications parts of you, it's another person who you ha- has to sort of follow your contours, as I said, but is it's not you because it's, and it's, you know, in the final I would
0: actually leg- argue that uh, there are multiple radio U's, just as there are multiple U's fighting for airtime in your real life. Yeah but, if you want, yeah, but if you
3: want to have a voice and you want to be recognizable on the air and you want to do pieces with some style, it's, the, you know, obviously it changes because each piece suggests a different format depending on the tape you get and everything. But in terms of being yourself, and
2: it may, you want pieces that are clearly, oh. But you know, that that that, that asshole thing is, is yeah. interesting because, I mean, <laughs> not that you want to come off quite that way, but there's a continuum of, I mean, you might call it very ingratiating on one end and mm-hmm. less so on the other. And... You know, it, it would not be uh, desirable for everyone to be a super nice, warm, and fuzzy personality on the radio. It's it is good to have people who are on that other end of things, not you know, blatantly insulting and and cursing people out, but to have that if that's a quality of you, to to go with that and work with that to the point where it's actually acceptable to be on the radio. You know, I think that would be. That's great. why we
0: love um, Howard Stern. I mean, he's a lovable asshole.
3: Yeah, Although you've got to be careful with that because commercial radio is completely right. full of people who are pretending they're angrier than they are or that mm-hmm. the world is more black and white than it really is and the beauty of public radio and especially the sort of what we've learned from Ira which is you can you can operate in the gray zone and be humble and still be interesting to listen to without pontificating
2: you know I've spent a lot of time in London we were talking about that and um, listen to the BBC interviewers interviewing any kind of public figures they are assholes I mean no no ifs ands or buts about it they they call people liars and challenge them and say how can you say that that is part of the persona that is that is a convention accepted on that radio. I know,
3: I just listened to Judy Swallow interview Henry Kissinger. It was just such a pleasure. <laughs> uh, she question? just.
2: I'm
0: wondering if you each have a concrete idea of what your voice is, like what kind of sentences
4: you use or um, what kind of phrases I use a joke every three sentences or something like that, <laughs> or whether it's an abstract idea, you just kind of hit on it. I'd eventually. like to
0: tell you that the, I discovered Marty's voice when I was listening to him and realized that every time he ended his piece, we say sock out, which means standard out cue SOC, uh, he had a different way of doing it. He was, yes, he was the New York bureau chief for Marketplace, but also what? What were some of the other ways that you?
3: Well, I would always take the logic of the last sentence and just fold it into, in New York, I'm Marty Goldenson for Marketplace. I'd put some phrase in, so, and if I couldn't think of one for the day, I would always just say, in New York, and everywhere else for that matter, I'm Marty Goldenson. So, it would at least be funny, right, but usually, if it was you know something if it was a piece about the you know growth of the interest rates, I would say you know in New York, uh, without a dime in my pocket, i'm Marty goldenson, just something that would. There's also on different
0: it. desk, right? You had created various desks that oh, you Oh, yes, from.
3: yes, uh, yes. If it was a story about some you know, kennel going out of business, it would be you know, at the market-based canine something desk. You know? right. But the point was not so much that. It was a way of being able to do a straight, reportorial, one-minute piece and still remind people that I wasn't every other reporter on public radio. It seemed to work on you. It
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think there's, a, um, there's that part that you can parse out and describe, uh, like if you were trying to tell somebody who would never heard this person before what some of their signature moves are. The part that you can actually put into words and, and and describe. Oh, they do this. Like maybe if somebody was trying to talk about my work, they'll they'd say, oh, she often picks something that sounds like it has it's not pitched, and then repeats it enough times that you begin to recognize some pitch in it, and then she begins, you know, singing that 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 pitch, and then at the end she always has you know layers that are all different lengths, and they they fade out one at a time. You know, and you could find those kinds of things, and I think so. There's that part of it, but then I think what really it makes a person's style distinctive is that combined with something that, it's, that is very difficult to explain in, in, in words. Um, because if you could, then anyone could do it. Anyone could, you know, what he just described, anyone could say, okay, that's a really smart way to do it. I'm going to start doing what he does. And they could do exactly word for word what he just described doing, and it wouldn't sound like him.
3: No, because the piece itself has to be a setup for the ending. It has to have some touch of humor or something. I mean, I think, I don't know what I do exactly, but I always feel like I try to bring some humor and some compassion to every piece. You know, I'm a sort of frustrated radical and, you know, and sort of a softy. And and who, you know, and... you know, I, I learned some of what I learned from Kurt Vonnegut, who I got to be his producer in radio 20 years ago and he taught me to write very, very tersely with some power and he did it in one the air conditioning was broken, the studio was 105 degrees, we had sent him to the Republican National Convention Joe Belden had done the taping with him, he came back I cut all the tape together and said you've got to write me continuities between these bits of actuality now I've got this piece here, you're standing in the slums of Detroit and there's a house here that's burnt out from the riots and there's another house next to it that has not, that it was beautifully, you know, rebuilt. So you're got to write me a sentence that gets me between these actualities that says something like, you know, there are areas that were nicely rebuilt and areas that, are, that look as bad as they did the day after the fires. And he, you know, one letter at a time on the old typewriter and then he said, well, how about this? we saw battlefields where anger won and battlefields where pity won. I said, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> that'll do. And, and I think the reason it was so great, it was very few words. It said what he felt, but it cut a level deeper than what you saw. It says that in the world, there's a battle between anger and compassion. And that's that's what he was writing about. He wasn't writing about what he saw, but the metal level below it. And he said it in what how many words is that? you know and I've been trying to do that ever since, and once in a while, I get close you know to it, and that's what I would try to do.
0: In the back:
1: Hi, there is an experience sorry. there's an experience that I've had as a reporter, and I don't know maybe others in this room have as well, when people have heard stories and they tell me you sound very NPR and when they do that I'm always part of me wants to say thank you and part of me wants to cringe <laughs> and I guess the reason is because um, and my question for you is do you feel at all or have a concern that in that medium that a certain form has become so dominant that that it's just kind of taken over and, and is taking away that unique voice.
0: Ben Yagoda on house style.
1: Well, yeah,
2: That is the relevant term and as I said I'm not a radio expert but there is this notion of a house style so I wrote a book about the New Yorker and it's less true of the New Yorker now but there was a time when you could read two sentences of a profile and know it came from the New Yorker. Um, In a way that's limiting but it's also liberating because Joseph Mitchell came around and took that sort of template and just ran with it and wrote amazing things um, that are still read today. Uh, New Yorker short story was considered a cliche, and maybe it was. John Cheever came and ran with that and transformed it into something wonderful. So that house style can be be something that limits you, but it can also be a starting point uh, to, to go beyond it as well.
3: And it is an insult. You know, it's like a Republican saying, oh, you had another demonstration and saying kumbaya and didn't do anything with it. You know, it just sort of cuts, <laughs> cuts at you. Um, it's interesting you raise it. Um, Brooke Gladstone, who is, you know, co-anchors on the media, came and spoke to the students and others at Swarthmore the other day. And she said when they sat down to make that show, they decided to break the NPR mold and not sound like NPR. And by the way, they don't in many ways. They really sound different. And I said, well, how is that? What do you do differently? And they say, she said, it's very simple. When you ask a question, you don't say to the interviewee, um, well, how would you respond or what do you say to those people who would call you a fascist? Mm-hmm. You just say, well, that's, you're a fascist. <laughs> and, and, so the sh- and, they, and if you listen to that show, that's how they do it. And the show is therefore mu- completely out of the NPR mold. So if you can figure out what... The NPR style is just stop doing it
1: <laughs> I, th- I think um, I've spent most of my broadcasting
3: career in Britain, and I think House style is affected a lot too by the way p- programming is funded because the BBC political interviewers, especially, can be very adversarial um, and they don 't have to worry about where uh, about funders complaining about their being adversarial also. Um, Parliament is very adversarial, so it's part of the British culture. And when I would come back to the U.S. and I would hear NPR interviewers, they all seemed so laid back to me, particularly the political interviewers, by comparison. And someone had to tell me after a few years, think about the complaints they would get if they were as as adversarial as we can be here. Yeah, that's true. Sad but but true. And, you know, sometimes you just got to go down the dial to listen to Imus screaming at somebody. yeah, and you know, it sometimes NPR gets better when, it, like all the journalists, when they get more cover from the House and Senate, and people get more courage. So you'll, I think you're going to find we're going to get better again.
0: Last question.
1: Um, I uh, I spent a lot of
0: my radio career writing for other people and producing other people's NPR stories, hundreds of them, and so I found it really freeing when I could start to write for myself and. And and actually, I'm not saying that I'm there yet or anything, but I wondered if any of you had had that experience where you kind of thought, oh wait, I'm not, I know that there's a sound in my head and I'm sort of trying to keep myself out of it, and then suddenly when it was up to me, it was actually like a wall had gone away and suddenly I was kind of able to put my own mark on it, or at least start to, and I wondered
2: if anybody had had that experience.
0: Well, you know, Ben has actually channeled Dr. Ruth. (laughs) Ben has written.
2: I've written um, four or five books with uh, the pint-sized sex, sex therapist, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and um, you know it's interesting. I, did you use the word liberating? I think I heard you say. Um, I found doing that liberating uh, because it was so easy to write in someone else's voice. Uh, you know, it was once you got the cadences and the sort of attitude and sensibility down, it was actually the the, the least heavy lifting of anything I've done. Um, How about but, the laugh? Before, no, I can't. I, that's why I, I write and don't speak. Um, the but, fried onion
3: ring can be a very good sexual tool.
2: Not, not bad. I'd give that a seven. But then you had to write for Bob Edwards, didn't you, Yeah, Dave? I did.
0: It, it was the hardest thing ever. But I think I finally got it.
2: Anyway,
3: we're real happy for you because it's pent up demand. I, I used to write for John Gambling, which is like bland. <laughs> you know, you, I, it, but it builds up in you. You know, and it, and it gives you. It's so frustrating. It is great when you can write for yourself. It feels really good.
0: Thank you for your questions. Thank you to Pamela Z, Ben Yagoda, and Marty Goldenson. Talk to you later during this conference.
1: And thank you, Dean Olsher. an applause for Dean Olsher. Thank you.